Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. A very good afternoon to you. Wonderful to be in your company this afternoon for a change. I've been away for a few weeks. Do apologize for the fact that uh, I haven't been here to share with you um, on this slot over the last number of weeks, but it is great to be back. And all systems go for, of course, a great and wonderful 2022 for the uh, year that lies ahead on Judaism 101.9. You know that today is the 24th day of the month of Shvat, and it's interesting to note that in Tanakh, this date is mentioned, the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shvat, in the second year of the reign of Darius, the word of God came to Zechariah, the son of Berchiah, the son of Ido, the prophet, saying, I will return to Jerusalem in mercy. My, my house will be built within her, and the Lord shall yet consult Zion and shall yet choose Jerusalem. And that's a quote from the prophet Zechariah. If you want to look it up, it's in Zechariah 1, verses 7 to 17, where this prophecy of the return to Jerusalem, the return to Yerushalayim, the rebuilding of the temple, it is actually mentioned there, it's spoken about there, and it's actually in this frame of being today, the 24th day of the 11th month, the 24th day of Shvat. Now this, interestingly enough, was a prophecy by Zechariah, which was two years before the completion of the second base Amigdash, the second temple, which was completed on the third of Adar in 3412 or 349 before the common era. So going back 2,400 odd years, we have this prophecy mentioned today. So what a beautiful way actually to start off this year's uh, Judaism 101.9 campaign or this year's Judaism 101.9 series of Wednesdays at 2 p.m. by telling you that there is a thread that runs through all of Judaism and a thread that runs through Jewish history, which links dates, which links seasons, which links months. There is so much synchronicity and there's so much that is united by all of these things that it's quite, quite mind, <coughs> mind-blowing. It's really, really something that I, I would like to spend some time today, as well as in future programs, discussing, talking to you about, thinking about some of the deeper meanings behind things and why they are linked across time frames and across um, eras, across centuries. But not only that, why there is a link between, for instance, things that are read in the Torah in our weekly parasha and how it applies and how it works that there is actually a connection to our lives today and what the message is on a deeper level. So to unpack it and to look beyond the level just of um, a law or something that is given to us in a very, very standard sort of a down-to-earth legalistic terminology, and how it applies to our souls, how it applies to our daily lives, even not only within the realm of that particular <laughs> that particular law, but something that applies to us on a much deeper spiritual level as well. So hopefully we can spend some time on Judaism 101.9, perhaps this year going a little deeper 
going a little bit beyond just the uh, plane and the uh, surface, um, and as they say, to scratch the surface, if we can just scratch the surface of some Torah learning or of things that um, that we uh, need to uh, think about and to do and uh, to have in mind in our practice of Judaism, perhaps, of course, and part of what our mandate is here on Judaism 101.9 is to look a little bit deeper, to look for the meanings, to understand a little bit more of why we do what we do. And uh, hopefully, if we can accomplish just a little bit of that and scratch that surface, we will certainly have made our program worthwhile. And hopefully, you will find it to be worthwhile as well. So let's perhaps kick off today by something that is read in the Parsha of this coming week. And while this is not a Parsha Shir, and I know that um, critics out there would probably say, you know, when in doubt, the rabbis all default to talking about the Parsha. Well, it's uh, like sort of, I don't know, easy for the rabbis, they might think, or you might think, um, because it's something topical. And if we're talking about the parsha in, the sh- in Shul on Shabbos, so it's, uh, of course, very easy just on a Wednesday afternoon to talk about the parsha as well and uh, to uh, kind of here practice my Shabbos shir and so on. Um, so I'm not doing that. I'm not looking at a uh, point within the parsha or some, or some points within the parsha to explain them. I'd rather take something from uh, this week's parsha, which um, has a relevance on so many different levels in our lives, and yet it's given or it's spoken about in the parsha in such an innocuous fashion, seemingly, um, that um, we don't really unpack, we don't really think about, we don't really see all of these deep and wonderful le- uh, levels and lessons that we could learn um, for our lives on a day-to-day basis. And it's probably one of the most common Statements that the Torah makes, probably one of the most common laws, um, possibly not that readily understood, but yet very, very common. And that is the law which says you should not cook a kid in its mother's milk. You should not cook a kid in its mother's milk. If we think about this statement, of course we know that it is one of the most basic principles of kashrut, of keeping kosher. And the way we know it is that you should not mix meat and milk together. That's the way that we know it. Don't mix meat and milk. And of course, you know that. That's why we don't have cheeseburgers. That's why we don't have um, uh, cream in our chicken soup. That's why we keep meat and milk completely and absolutely separate And as we'll talk about a little bit later, there is even a time between the eating of meat followed by milk and milk followed by meat and to explore a little bit why those times are there and why they differ so immensely. There, of course, is a very, very physical reason for it. But hopefully, as we said, we could dig a little deeper and go into something a little bit more uh, spiritual, perhaps, but something that, of course, has a great and important message for us on our day-to-day Uh, living. If we think about this law, you should not cook a kid in its mother's milk. Well, just basically in Jewish law, we um, take a look at the fact that the Torah, in fact, makes the statement not once, but three times. Now, the Torah is not telling us something three times 
to only underscore it, to underline it, to tell us, well, like as a naughty child, if I've told you once, I've told you once, but if I tell you three times, you definitely should listen, or you have to ask the question, why can't we listen the first time? And in fact, Jewish law, in a way, asks that question, and we're told that when something appears like that in Torah, and it appears three times, each time, our sages have told us, each time is to teach us something different. So the first time it says you should not cook a kid in its mother's milk, it's talking just about the plain action of cooking. The second time that it says you should not cook a kid in its mother's milk, it's got to teach us something more. So what does it teach us? That not only should you not cook it, but you should not eat it. And the third time it says you should not cook a kid in its mother's milk, we are talking about the fact that not only should you not cook it and you should not eat it, but you should not have any benefit from such a mixture. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Okay, so we were talking about not cooking a kid in its mother's milk, the idea of not mixing meat and milk together. Now, we know this to be a very, very basic fundamental principle of kashrut. But have you ever thought of why? Why is it that this is there? Does it make any logical sense? And certainly, does it make any spiritual sense? What does it do for us? What do we think of? Well, I think that the majority of people would state or would say, you know, this idea of not cooking a kid in its mother's milk has got something to do with compassion, Um, that we need to demonstrate some sort of compassion, that um, we don't take the meat and the milk, like the chickens and the eggs kind of together, um, sort of to hurt the mother and so on. But I think that you'll agree with me that, first of all, not every animal um, that we eat can uh, provide milk. And uh, why do we apply it, for instance, to those animals? What about uh, the male animals that don't provide any milk? What about um, the fact that you can not cook a kid in its mother's milk, but maybe another one? Why do we, why does it apply to all meat and all milk if this is the issue, if it's only about this idea of compassion. And so maybe we could say, well, it was extended from there. But in fact, when we think about it really, really deeply, from a Torah perspective, the Torah does not add that kind of overlay of that type of a meaning to that mitzvah. It doesn't tell us that this is something of compassion, that we need to be aware of animal rights and so on. Yes, of course we do, but maybe this is not what we're actually getting at here. So what is the deeper meaning behind this idea of not mixing meat and milk together? Why was it extended so far, and what are some of the rules and regulations that pertain to it? Well, let's first of all start off with a couple of the rules and regulations about it. We know that we don't cook meat and milk together. We don't eat meat and milk together. We don't have benefit from meat and milk together. And it applies across the board. Our sages added in that it's not only red meat, but in fact it is chicken as well. Because chicken and fowl, birds, uh, whether it's chicken, duck, and so on, because turkeys, because those creatures, those animals um, mimic the rules mimic exactly the rules for meat. In other words, it's got to be slaughtered in a certain way and the blood has to be removed and it's salted and soaked and so on. And we regard the rules for all meat, whether it is fowl or whether it is, and that's F-O-W-L, whether it's fowl or whether it is 
animal meat, actually, we regard the rules and regulations for them as all being completely equal um, for our waiting time, for the mixture with meat, with, with milk and so on. And therefore, we've just added another layer here of it not readily being understood about cooking a kid in its mother's milk. Why does this apply to chicken meat, to fowl meat as well? <coughs> and perhaps if we delve a little bit deeper and we think about the rules and regulations first, we will eventually get to some kind of a deeper understanding of what this is really all about. So let's think about the concept of meat and milk being cooked together as well as the rules and regulations that apply to it. So first of all, some of the rules. We don't eat meat and milk on the same plate. We don't eat it with the same utensils. In a kosher kitchen, we have to have separate cooking utensils. We have to have separate eating utensils. We have to have separate washing up facilities for meat and for milk, completely and absolutely and totally separate. Well, you've just uh, seen there, uh, you know, people always complain about the costs of keeping a kosher kitchen. Well, keeping kosher does cost more just there and then. You need double kind of, of everything. You can't just have one set of dishes. You can't have one set of pots. You can't have one set of knives and forks. But I'm sure that you already knew that. Um, that is one of the basic rules. There is another basic rule, and that is actually pertaining to you. If we think about it, the regulation says you should not eat meat and milk together. It's not just about cooking it. It's not just about serving it. You should also not eat it. We do not eat meat and milk together. We don't consume them at the same time. Well, how far do we actually take this? And you will probably know that the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, actually tells us that um, there needs to be a separation between the eating of meat and milk, and it's a time separation. Besides, for the fact that there is a physical separation, you're not allowed to serve them on the same plate, on the same table, and so on, there is actually a time separation as well. Once one has eaten meat, one needs to wait until the next meal in order to eat milk. That's the way that actually the original Shulchan Aruch actually tells it. Now, the discussion then ensues and says, well, what does it mean till the next meal? And the obvious conclusion is that we're talking about a time rather than the fact that you can just finish the meat meal and immediately eat the milk meal. As long as you've kind of uh, washed your hands maybe or benched and you've said you'll grace off the meals, now you've constituted the end of one meal, you can go immediately into the next one. Um, that is not our conclusion. The conclusion is that, as with many other things in Shulchan Aruch, that we're actually referring to a time frame. The time from eating meat needs to be the time that ordinarily one would eat the next meal. And therefore, you can see the logic here as to how the idea of the six-hour or the sixth-hour rule actually came into being. Because most people would eat the meals, certainly in our civilization, our countries, and so on, there would be a gap of five or six hours between meals. Hopefully, you're not one of these people who uh, eats several meals a day. But, of course, that's that too is covered in Shulchan Aruch. They talk about certain countries where the gap, the space between meals was shorter. And this perhaps is where some of the misnomers come in because there are, there talks about some 
countries where the gap was only three hours, and it talks about some countries where the gap was only one hour, where people ate regularly. But undoubtedly, the conclusion of Shulchan Aruch is that the majority of people would eat meals kind of a six-hour distance from each other. Well, think about it. Breakfast, let's say, is at uh, uh, 7 a.m. in the morning, and then lunch is at 1 p.m., and then supper is at 7 p.m. You've got there your layout of your six-hour differences. And it's actually from here that the conclusion is that we should wait six hours after we eat meat until we eat milk. Now, Anybody who's looked at it on a logical level will tell you that it takes a long, a longer time to digest. So this is the way that we understand it. We explain it. It takes a longer time to digest the meat than it does the milk. And therefore, once one has had milk until one eat, eats meat, the time wait is less. And some people say that it's an hour and there are some who say it's part of an hour over half an hour and so on. There are some, a couple of different uh, customs here. It's unless you've had a hard rennet containing cheese where one has to wait also six hours. They are sometimes referred to as, as six-hour cheese, and you might sometimes see, you might even see on packaging, there is six-hour cheese, there's one-hour cheese, um, and this is where it all comes from. But there seems to be this strange misnomer, or this strange uh, dichotomy here, this difference that from meat to milk is six hours, from milk to meat is a lot less. And our question has to be why? And the logical conclusion is it takes a lot longer for us to ingest, to digest the uh, meat. And therefore, we wait for it actually not only to go out of our mouths, but kind of out of our stomachs as well um, when it's uh, digested properly and it's sitting in the uh, intestines or it's been expelled from the body, um, then we can uh, gladly go ahead and eat the other meal. It's um, a very, very interesting uh, concept. Let's park that for a moment, and let's also talk about something else that is interesting and fascinating for the context of this discussion. And that is that when we have mixtures of meat and milk together, our question is, when does it become forbidden? And Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, Jewish practice, has it, that it becomes in a forbidden when there is a mixture kind of that you cannot separate is rule number one. So for instance, if you had on a table in front of you right now a piece of meat and you had a right next to it a piece of cheese and both of them were cold and even if they were on the same plate at the same table, God forbid, and even if they touched, really nothing has transferred from the one to the other. The only time that you would have a problem is if there is heat involved. When there is heat involved, we kind of get the merging of particles and the merging of juices that becomes merged in an indelible fashion. Of course, if we're talking about liquids, um, once again, if the milk has dropped into the chicken soup and it's there in an indelible fashion, there's no way one can remove the milk from the meat because it's mixed together in such a way that it's inseparable. That also is a problem. But let's talk about our uh, kind of bland, plain, cold foods that may have touched each other. Um, there's really nothing wrong. One may want to just rinse them off. You might want to wipe it over. But really there's been no transfer from the one to the other unless there was some heat involved. Now, when we're talking about heat being involved, there is an interesting uh, discussion in Jewish law which talks about what happens if the 
um, the one is hot and the other one is not hot. If they're both hot, we understand. What if one is hot and the other one is not hot? So side by side, um, there is a discussion about But There is a fascinating discussion which I'd like to share with you, which is what happens if the one is on top of the other. So you've got, let's say, a piece of non-kosher meat and you put some kosher milk product on top of it and the one is hot and the other one isn't hot. Um, what is the ruling on that? Can we still use our rule of the fact that since they weren't both hot, that there's no merging? If one is hot, does that is that enough to transfer the heat, to transfer the substance? And the conclusion is a fascinating one. It depends on which one is on the bottom. If on the bottom you have the hot one, it is forbidden. If on the top you had the hot one, it is not forbidden. And you would have to, of course, consult your rabbi, your tashrut expert. We wouldn't go around making these decisions ourselves. But this is just the basic principle. It all depends on what is on the bottom. And now we can come to a much deeper understanding, having these basic uh, rules and principles in place, a much deeper understanding of what the actual principles of meat and milk are truly all about. And we need to here transfer our minds for a moment to mysticism, Kabbalah, and uh, particularly um, a great work that was done by a Rabbi Shlomo Bazaglo, um, who lived in 1700 to 1780 in something called the Mikdash Melech on the Zohar, where he writes about this in the most fascinating terms. And it's become something of a real uh, crystallized thought on how meat and milk and uh, all its principles actually applies to us, apply to us on a regular basis. So let's take this and unpack it. First of all, when we talk about meat and milk, we're actually talking from a mystical point of view of two different attributes. Now, we've come across these attributes before. We've discussed them many, many times on this program and on others, on this radio station and elsewhere. And that is that milk represents chesed or kindness. Meat represents gvura, severity or discipline. Now, the difference between those two is obvious just by the words, but let's think about it. When we talk about kindness, we're talking about something that is expensive, benevolent, gracious, um, and so on. When we talk about gvura, when we talk about discipline, uh, discretion, we talk about harshness, we talk about something much more severe, severity, we think about the juxtaposition between these two. And when we think about milk, um, we're told that that is kindness. When we think about meat, we're told that that is severity. And it's actually depicted even by their color. So the color of milk, you know, is white. White has this element of purity, of being uh, very calm, of being very nice and kind and wonderful. And meat, red, harsh, severe, um, a color that is abrupt and a little bit out there and a little bit abrasive, that is the difference then in a spiritual realm between the uh, the attribute that meat represents and milk represents. And we here come to something fascinating. When we're talking about a mixture of meat and milk, perhaps we're told, we're thinking about the mixture between kindness and severity. Now, kindness and severity are two attributes that we all have a mixture of. We've got to mix them 
in ourselves. There are times when we need to be absolutely kind. There are times when we need guru, when we need a little bit of rigidity, a little bit of discipline, a little bit of uh, restraint, and so on. All of those, or those two attributes, form the basis of many, many of our interactions, not only with um, God, but certainly with our fellow men and with our, the world around us, kindness and severity. And we talk here about in terms of meat and milk. And what the Torah perhaps is telling us is that there is a basic concept that meat and milk are so completely different that in the way we ingest them, they dare not mix because if they mix, we're, set, we're, we're merging together and the one is going to influence over the other, perhaps, and be lost. And we need to make sure that these opposing traits are actually kept separate. But here comes something really, really fascinating. And that is why the bigger weight after meat than after milk. Why the six-hour story rather than the one-hour or the 45-minute story um, of waiting after one has eaten milk or that one-hour cheese that we referred to before? Why is there this bigger wait? Well, we're thinking about the fact that which is the one that is more wanted, that is more um, demanded or more commanded for us to have within our daily lives, kindness. Everything should start with kindness. Everything should be done in a kind way. The severity needs to be the overlay. If one has the uh, severity and it's there in a harsh fashion, well, spiritually it takes quite a long time to get that out of your digestive system. Harshness is much more difficult to expunge from the body and from the being and from your nature than actual kindness is. And so therefore, there needs to be this longer wait. We need to know that it's going to take you a lot longer to get over this jarring, harsh, disciplined attribute of um, of severity than it would the one of kindness. Now, King Solomon wrote that for everything there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven. Our lives are governed by time, and time is fundamental to Jewish life and observances. If you don't yet have your Chai FM two-year, that's 2022 and 2023 calendar. You need to get it now. It has all the information you need to live life as a Jew. Shabbat times, communal candle lighting times, holy days and holidays, fasts, special Shabbats, days of significance, even the school holidays, all on one calendar. Get your Chai FM to your calendar at the Kollel Bookshop and post net in Glen Hazel. Don't waste time. Go now. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. So we've been discussing the concepts of meat and milk, and of course, severity and kindness from a Kabbalistic point of view. Well, here comes the clincher, if you wish. When we talked about the idea of which one is on top and which one is on, bot- on the bottom um, for whether they affect each other and how long you have to wait thereafter. We said that if the one that is on the bottom is hot, that is um, means that one has to wait. If it's on the top, one doesn't have to wait as long um, if they uh, touched each other, if you had the meat overlaying the milk or vice versa. This is a basic principle in, uh, in these laws and we discussed it earlier on. Well, what does it mean? If we think about it in terms of kindness and severity, here is the key. The key to it all is 
that the Torah is actually telling us, say our sages in mysticism, in Kabbalah, they tell us that everything has to begin with kindness. We've got to remember that the starting point needs to be kindness. If you started with severity, oh, you've got to wait to expunge that from the system. You've got to wait for that to get out of there, and it's a longer period. A lot more work has to be done to get it out of there. But if you've got it right, that every interaction, whether it's an interaction that actually calls for love and for kindness, or it's an interaction that sometimes calls for discipline, severity, harshness, um, you can only think, for instance, you've got to discipline a child. You need to discipline a staff member. You need to discipline um, or criticize um, a friend. One needs to be careful that the starting point needs to be kindness. And, in fact, one should sit and one should contemplate and one should think, first and foremost, about the kindness dimension before one comes to the severity dimension, the discipline dimension. If it's done with the beginning of kindness, that is a methodology that is recommended by Torah. That is something that is going to work. If you start with severity and then try and overlay the kindness, you're going to battle with it a lot more. Now, it sounds easier said than done. Well, wonderful. You know, I'm always going to be kind. But if you think about it, could you imagine you had cause to have to for instance, discipline a child or criticize somebody. If you jump in and you jump with that criticism and it only comes from a place of gvura, of severity, of um, being harsh, of being, let's call it disciplining or uh, trying to uh, enforce something upon somebody, whether it is a child, that employee, that friend, that neighbor, spouse maybe, um, and so on, the first thing always needs to be kindness. This needs to be the basis. When it is kindness, it doesn't affect the severity as much as if it's severity first. That will certainly impact upon and affect the kindness. One needs to be sure and one needs to make sure that in our lives, learning from an interaction between meat and milk, cooking a kid in its mother's milk, that we understand how kindness needs to dominate Everything that we do, it needs to be the basis. It needs to be the starting point. If we start off with kindness, we will be able to accomplish, we'll be able to achieve that which we are set up to achieve. We'll be able to do our, our, um, we'll be able to do our beckoning. We'll be able to do our calling. We'll be able to do what we were created for and not the other way around. Don't allow severity to dominate you. Now, as you know, Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. So hopefully we can take the simple messages of Torah and inculcate them, integrate them into our daily lives. We need to remember that the learning of Torah never ends. We need to remember that it is layer upon layer and uh, one can go deeper and deeper and deeper in the understanding and in the learning and the study of Torah. Um, it is absolutely Endless. And therefore, hopefully this year, as we said right at the outset, at the beginning of this program, we can spend some time um, delving a little bit deeper into some issues, some dimensions. Hopefully we can spend some time doing everything that we have set out to do and we want to try and accomplish with Judaism 101.9 to give you the basics, to give you the stuff that perhaps you have forgotten, the stuff that perhaps you never learned, the things that you need to hear about, the things that are current, that are coming up, events, 
uh, time-bound things that are going to be occurring. And uh, hopefully we can spend some meaningful time together in this session um, each week on a Wednesday between 2 and 3 o'clock here on uh, Judaism 101.9 High FM. I want to wish you a great rest of the week. I want to wish you a great Shabbat up ahead. Look forward to being back with you and to continuing our discussions on Judaism 101.9, same time, same place. Next week, look forward to seeing you.